All right. So yeah, welcome to uh, CSF Sense. So tonight we are speaking once again with our uh, lovely three pals from Ratio Christi. Um, so these guys are, well, actually they'll probably explain it better than I can. So if we can go like Andrew to Will to Bob, just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do. Hi, uh, yes, I'm Andy Foland and I am the chapter director, one of three chapter directors at Ratio Christi at IUPUI. Um, RC is an apologetics ministry. And so if you look at our logo, we have a kind of a squares as a Venn diagram. One of the squares represents evangelism and the other one represents uh, apologetics or giving uh, an ev evidence for the faith. And so uh, that's what our ministry is. So we, we try to help uh, students and faculty and uh, um, try to work with other student ministries to uh, equip people with uh, reasons to believe. Everything Andy said, except my name isn't Andy, it's Will. Um, so I, I am a, another chapter director at IUPUI, and I also do some other national work for Rasho Christi too, so. And everything that they said, except my name is Rob Schultz, um, and I'm, yeah, I've been with Rasho Christi now for uh, probably coming up two years almost, about two years since I kind of started thinking I might do something like this. Um, so I've been doing this for now like about two years. I've been in campus ministry for many more years in various capacities. And I also teach theology for a small university. Awesome. So thank you guys for being here. Uh, super excited to have this again. It was, uh, immensely popular the first time and I uh, have no doubt you guys are going to bring the heat this time around too. So I'll go ahead and pray and then we'll get started. So God, I thank you for this day. Thank you that uh, these guys from Russia Christie who really have a have a passion and a talent for um, for defending you, for defending uh, what we as Christians believe. And I pray that this night is fruitful, that everyone learns something, and that it emboldens us to go out and share. Uh, in your name, I pray. Amen. Yeah. So the way that these questions are broken up uh, is. First, we're going to start with some logistical questions, and then we're going to go into some theology. And finally, we'll end with a learning more section where we'll talk about how you guys um, who are watching and uh, can, can kind of dig into things, these types of questions on your own as well. So first with the more logistical side of things. So praying with power is a common phrase we hear around the church. Um, and what exactly does that mean? Do does our prayers have power or is there power derived from us being Christians or what, what is that power that we speak of? Well, uh, I guess I'll go first. Uh, I actually don't use that phrase, uh, but um, I guess the way I would understand it is that uh, the power isn't found in us and it isn't found in our prayer. It's found in the object of our prayer. So it would seem to me that uh, uh, power, praying with power is, uh, involves praying uh, to the right object, uh, namely God, not idols, right? So I think of uh, something like the Sermon on the Mount uh, where Jesus says, you know, he teaches the disciples to pray. He says, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? So we've got to pray to the holy God um, in heaven. Uh, I think of, uh, say, Isaiah, you know, chapters 40 and following where 
God's continually chastising uh, people for worshiping false gods and that don't hear, don't speak, can't think like the true God can. So I think we have, we have to have the right object and I think we have to have the right heart. Um, and again, I guess I would turn to the Sermon on the Mount for that. Um, when, when I think, uh, when Jesus is talking about what it means to have the right heart, um, he talks about having a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I think that his, his talk on uh, prayer, part of having a hunger and thirst for righteousness is praying in that way, um, which means you got to pray with the right motives and the right heart, right? You don't, not hypocritically, Jesus talks about, not you know, standing on the street corner so all the people can uh, applaud you, but uh, be willing to be in secret. Right? where nobody can see you but God. Uh, so uh, you got to have the right heart in, in the sense that uh, it's not that you're out to try to impress God with a bunch of fancy words. Um, God doesn't care about that. You're not going to impress him uh, in that regard. So uh, it's rather about praying, thy will be done, which is what he, Jesus goes on to teach uh, in that uh, sermon. So I think those are a couple things uh, regarding what it means to, to pray with a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, I guess the only thing I throw in is that I do see some places in scripture where it talks about things like um, not having any known sin in your life that you're uh, uh, promoting uh, as you pray. I see places like in Psalm 66 where it says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Um, so, or uh, even uh, a passage like First Peter, um, where it talks about husbands have to honor their wives. Uh, and if they don't do that, their prayers will be hindered, right? They have to honor their wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers won't be hindered. So I do think there's that sense, too. And again, that, that, that all seems to me to point to this idea of hunger uh, and thirst for righteousness in our prayers. So, uh, seems to be a sense of... I guess I, sense no, of, no, I'm finished. I think what you're getting, one thing you're getting at is, um, you know, when I, when I first read that question, it was like my, my cynical side said, I don't know, it sounds like a marketing uh, ploy for a, a, a publisher or something, trying to sell books or a, or a, or a workshop or something. Um, but that's a little unfair, only a little, but it's a little unfair. And, uh, but you know, you, you, we read about, you know, when we are weak, he is strong. In a sense where our, our power is somehow connected with our weakness. A recognition of the reality of our need um, as, as much, if not more than anything else. Uh, that's our need for, you know, uh, crying out for mercy, uh, for you know, recognizing, you know, you know, what a sinner I am, you know, it's, you know, as, as Paul became more and more mature in his faith, he became in his eyes, own eyes, a greater and greater sinner. Um, you can kind of, you can kind of count this, kind of see where he becomes the chief of sinners later in his life. Mm -hmm. So a greater and greater realization of one's own um, need um, and of course, there's, you know, which said the, the object, you know, what, what is our, what are we praying to or 
not just for, but to whom. And sometimes we're praying just to ourselves. Sometimes we're praying to our faith rather than to God. You know, we put our faith in our faith. Um, and that's no good. And that's, that's actually very popular um, and very much uh, um, encouraged. Not, not quite as blatantly, but if you look at it a little closer, you know, just have more faith. Just have more faith. Faith, faith, faith. Faith in what? Um, you know, faith in tiny as a mustard seed seems to be pretty powerful. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's mostly the object um, and, and persistence, um, especially when it's hard. I think that it's a sense, I, I don't have proof of this, but it seems in scripture that just pushing through it, especially when you don't want to, there's something, there's something there, you know, there's no formula, but there's something there. I know Andy and Bob both talked about object and I, I love that term um, because I love object lessons. And so I just want to share with you, I've got a power strip here. And, you know, if this power strip isn't plugged into the power source, this isn't going to do a lot of good. And so in the same way, you know, I think of um, John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, uh, it's in he, he who will bear much fruit. And so apart from me, you can do nothing. And so in the same way, you know, in, in Acts 1, it talks about you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So it's, a, it's that reliance on God and on the Holy Spirit, uh, because the Holy Spirit, you know, it says, He'll, um, he, it says in Romans 8, 26 to 28, uh, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us and, and basically speaks and gives us that power. And so, again, it's the object of what are we relying on? Are we relying on our own strength, on our own words, or um, are we plugged into that power source, uh, the Holy Spirit, to then um, have him you know, pray for us and pray through us, you know, um, in order to accomplish, you know, God's will. So. Yeah, I, I love that. The, the power source is a, is a common, um, common tool that I've seen used. And I think it's, it's, you're right. It's, it's very powerful in remembering what prayer actually is. It's not us just throwing things out to the mist. It's us connecting so uh, yes, I love that example. Um, so second question, how a bit of a switch, but how can I find a healthy Bible believing church? Like what are some green flags? Green flags. Well, I mean, the first thing, I mean, the key term there is Bible believing. <laughs> so you, you kind of have to know your theology going into a church, you know, and I, I think of, um, Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy is their doctrines and orthopraxy is their practices. How are they practicing that, living that out? And so really kind of going into it, um, looking at the church's foundation, are they solid biblically or, um, you know, they're rooted in scripture or is there some shifting sand or are they um, denying the miracles of Jesus? Are they taking parts of scripture out of context or even replacing um, scripture? Um, and so, I guess one of my questions and something to think about is, um, yeah, it's, it's just like knowing what, what your foundation is beforehand and then kind of, you know, looking in at the church and, and say, and kind of measuring that against, you know, the theology of, of the firm foundation. 
think we do kind of get back to what we were talking about a moment ago about, you know, the power source. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's very, well, first of all, I'm all totally for a Bible believing church. But that phrase is, you're going to find that, you're not going to find that in too many places. They aren't saying that, you, you know, your, your Jehovah's Witnesses will say that and your Bible churches will say that <laughs> and your, you know, everybody. And, and some might even be hitting it. Um, and sometimes you'll find it in places you wouldn't so much expect. Um, but, but yeah, where, where are they? Where are they drawing the power from? It's kind of, are they, is it entertainment driven? Is it program driven? Um, doesn't mean it's bad, but sometimes the, the trappings in an otherwise good church uh, can become a distraction to the actual message or that's where they're finding the power. Um, you know, if we do it this certain way, it will magically produce spiritual fruit. And I use that term magically very intentionally because it's functionally sorcery. Um, you know, when you think you can control the spiritual by, by your means, and that's surprisingly common. Um, I think we need to keep an eye on our history, you know, know what it means to be Bible-believing. You know, have they, do they, does the church hold to the historic creeds, you know, things that Christians have always believed, either implicitly or explicitly? Not everybody is out there reciting the Nicene Creed, but if they're denying the Nicene Creed, that's, that's not a green flag. Um, even saying no creed but the but Christ or no creed but the Bible, it's you know that's not that's not what the Bible says, <laughs> you know, um, or what Christ says, um, and uh, so yeah, you know there needs to be humility and not just a sense that we have it all figured out. So I, you know, one one thing that I find helpful is. You know, how much can I fellowship with people who are different than me? You know, what's important versus what's most important? And I mean, I, some of my best friends, you know, people I trust most, we have very opposite, you know, within the realm of Christian orthodoxy. You know, we differ on very severely, and yet I love them and I want them to prosper. And they want me to prosper. They're not so tied up in their own stuff. So, yeah, it, grace, love, you see that, yeah, that's half the battle, at least. Well, another thing I was thinking, I mean, when, when I think of the term healthy, obviously I go, I think to food, you know, and it's like, what are we putting into our bodies to make us healthy? And so, you know, I, I think of the whole, you know, comparison of um, milk versus meat in a church, you know, are you going to a church where you're just getting the spiritual milk or is there going to be some depth there where you're actually going to be fed more than just a gospel light um, theology? And so, because, you know, milk is good, but in order to, to really be healthy, you need to have that balanced diet, you know, and, and, and to have that um, so that you're just not feeding on the surface level, the you know, basic nutrients, you know, sometimes the good stuff's hard to swallow. And um, if it goes down too easy all the time, 
you know, that that's a, a yellow flag, <laughs> you know, maybe it, not everything's easy. And if, if that, if the easy, the easy stuff is all that's being given um, and the hard stuff is kind of being dismissed or avoided or just, you know, focusing on the, you know, here's five tips for a better, you know, life with Jesus. Yeah, it's not really how the Bible works. Uh, it ain't easy. And anyone who tries to make it seem easy is probably trying to sell you something. I really liked uh, everything you guys have said. I, I particularly wanted to uh, pick up on Will's uh, talk about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. I thought that's good. Uh, orthopraxy, yes, because we don't uh, just want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers, right, as James talks about. But I want to talk specifically about orthodoxy because my background is uh, is one in which I, I come from uh, a pretty liberal denomination. Um, now, my particular church wasn't as liberal as the denomination is, but I need to say I've heard a lot of things in the church uh, as a result of being affiliated with that denomination at one time. Um, and if I am looking for a healthy Bible-believing church, I'm going to ask about the nature of four things. Uh, I'm going to ask about the nature of God. I'm going to ask about their view on the nature of the Bible, the nature of miracles, and the nature of the gospel. Because I find a lot of, uh, a lot of concerns within Christendom um, in those particular areas. So the nature of God and Jesus. Um, do, they, do they hold the Trinity? Do they believe in the deity of Christ? Do they think that God is really all-knowing and can know the future? These are kinds of things that are being challenged even in some churches that call themselves Christian. Uh, what about the nature of the Bible? I just, I'd meet with the pastor and ask him, do you believe it's inerrant or does it have contradictions? What's your view? Um, do you believe the Bible is the word of God or does your doctrinal statement just say it contains the word of God? It's got parts of it that are the word of God, but not all of it. Um, is it the final authority for faith and practice? So what's their view um, on the Bible? Um, and I would ask them about miracles. I'll never forget uh, hearing a sermon from a guy who was talking, uh, he was talking about uh, uh, Jesus and the uh, feeding of the 5,000 and uh, said, well, the whole thing is not literal, right? I mean, he didn't actually miraculously feed 5,000 people. This is from the pulpit. And uh, uh, I wanted, uh, I didn't, fortunately didn't get a chance to, but I wanted to go up to him after the sermon and say, tell me, was the resurrection of Jesus literal or not? And I think he just said no. Uh, so you got to find out what they believe about miracles, because there's some people even in uh, the head of the church who are uh, being taught at liberal seminaries who hold very uh, non-orthodox views. And then uh, the nature of the gospel as well. Just ask them, what's the gospel? Uh, does it have deity, death and resurrection of Christ in there? Uh, you know, is Jesus the only way uh, or are there other ways? So those, I'd explore those kinds of areas uh, to find out where they stand. So if so, thank you guys for those um, those answers. And um, Alyssa, if you'd like to ask the next question, we're going to move into the theological um, type questions now. So 
Yeah, absolutely. Good to see you guys again. Good to see you. Um, so this third question, what happens to those who have never heard the gospel? For example, indigenous tribes who also don't know what a satellite is kind of thing. Um, also, what about babies who die in utero? So if you have, if you come from a faith background that believes that we are created with a sin nature and these babies or even young children um, never come to faith in repentance, then what happens to them? We have like three hours to answer this one. Yeah. <laughs> well, first thing I think that we need to keep at the forefront is condemnation is not based on not hearing the gospel. Okay. It's based on our rebellion and rejection of God, our active rebellion against God. It's not because we didn't hear something. Is that, am, I, am I clear there? Because it's... Yeah. It could be easily misunderstood what I'm saying. I think you need to hear the gospel, but our condemnation is not because we didn't hear something. Right. Um, uh, our salvation is because we heard something and believed, um, but not our, not our condemnation. Um, and uh, so for me, um, I don't know if that, say that helps, but it, it does say that that um, apart from grace, I am going to rebel against God, and so is everyone else, most likely. Now we, yeah, we we have depending on how you see the sin nature. The bottom line is we have actively rebelled against him. However, the whole original sin thing works out. Um, so I'm going to stop right there because we'll probably come back around. And well, I'll, I'll jump in uh, then. Uh, I think that there are, uh, at least in my experience, there are a few different ways that this uh, this question is uh, is handled, and I'm speaking specifically now about those who've never heard, uh, like the indigenous tribes or something like that. Uh, maybe we'll save the the babies for the next part because I think uh, those those are two different questions, although related certainly. So, but speaking to those who um, uh, say have reached the age of accountability or whatever, um, I find that. Um, two major camps within Christendom on this, within evangelical Christendom anyway. Um, but I think they generally, they, they both hold to this idea, um, maybe maybe not, maybe I'm overstating, but I'll, I'll say I hold to it. God wants everybody to be saved. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.4 uh, says that. So I think that's true. Um, everybody receives general revelation. Uh, so it's not that people haven't heard anything. Um, not everybody's heard the gospel, but everybody has some revelation of God. Uh, and I think that everybody within evangelicalism would hold that uh, everybody has to have the blood of Christ applied uh, to them in order to be saved. If they don't have the blood of Christ, they're not going to be saved. The question is, do you have to know that the blood of Christ has been applied towards you? And this is where I see the two camps uh, differ. And one camp 
says, not necessarily. If you're not in a place or a time where you can hear that revelation, God doesn't hold you accountable for that revelation. He's going to hold you accountable to the revelation you're given. Uh, the other camp would say, yeah, but the revelation you're given, you're going to rebel against, so you have to have it. <laughs> um, and God's going to get it to you if you're willing to receive it. Uh, and if you're not willing to receive it, then maybe you don't get it. But um, that, that's generally how I've uh, seen the two camps to answer it. And maybe I'll stop at this point and then see if we circle back or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's like the general revelation, you know, talks about, you know, that's a good thing for, you know, proving the existence of God, but it doesn't really give, you know, the gospel message with the need for, for, salvation and all that but you know back in romans 10 it's like okay we're called to preach the word you know to wherever we go um one thing I, and this is side note but 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 even relative um to what we're talking about you know you think of um 10 or 20 years ago where you know you had the 1040 window and there's a lot of people to be reached and this that and the other um but then it's like you even look at today you know it's like you look at um just the technology that we have today in reaching people and um, there, were, there was an article I read uh, earlier. It says, in remote African tribes, mobile phones are amazing tools. And just talking about how in 2010, you know, they were talking about this, this um, tribe in Tanzania, about half the people there were using phones in 2010, half the households there, but now virtually all the households are using it. And it's like one respondent said, the phone is one of the best tools we've ever seen. And, and I look at just the technology from the standpoint of, okay, there's... Um, 7.8 billion people in the world. Um, in January 2021, there was an article that said that um, there were 4.66 active internet billion billion um, active internet users worldwide, and of that, there were like 4.2 billion active uh, mobile users. And so, just to see how just a cell phone, you know, people are going into all the world with their cell phone, and there's ministries, you know, putting you know, SIM cards in the phone and putting like the Jesus film in, in like 50 or hundred different, you know, all these different languages. And so you see where God's using even the technology of today to, to reach those people groups, which is really kind of an exciting thing. Um, and so you kind of look at that now versus, you know, 10 or 20 years ago where, you know, oh man, are these people ever going to hear the gospel? And it's like, well, yeah, now, now they're actually, you know, being able to be exposed to the gospel. Um, in ways that we never thought we could. So that's kind of an exciting uh, tangent from that standpoint. Um, and yeah, like Andy said, for, from you know, 1 Timothy 2.4, it's like God desires all people to be saved. And so you, you look at God, the character of God, because there's a lot that we don't know, you know, regarding the infants and babies, um, a lot of that we don't know, you know, and so we have to kind of take it on faith. But at the same time, it's like, what do we know about God and his character? And like Andy said, you know, he desires he, everyone to be saved you know, and, and how he does that, we, you know, there's just some mysteries that we may not be able to fully answer the side of heaven, but knowing the character of God that, you know, John three sixteen, you know, he so loved the world that, you know, and, and just to see the fact that um, that's his heart is to bring every living being, you know, person, you know, into a relationship, back into a relationship with him. Um, and we might not fully know how he's going to do that, but uh, again, just trusting in his ways, Versus the things that we can actually, you know, see with our own eyes, um, you know, faith, you know. So I want to complicate things a little bit here for us. 
Go for it. That's what I do. Um, you know, reading the question, it's a great question and it's well worded. Uh, it's, it's well put, but part of what I do, and I think all of us do, is not just answer questions, but question the questions. Let, let, let's look at the question and, and the assumptions behind it or in it, which are totally valid and understandable. Um, so, you know, what happens to those who've never heard the gospel? Um, it, uh, that kind of implies that uh, God is obligated to offer salvation to those who reject him. And that's, that's not really something you can say from scripture. Um, you know, one place we see, like we're saying, he desires all to be saved, but he also has some vessels created for as objects of wrath. Um, and Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. However you take that, it doesn't work out so great for Esau. Um, and it doesn't sound fair. Um, yeah, and then we said, you know, created with a sin nature. You know, what do we mean by created with a sin nature? Were we created with a sin nature or do we inherit it? You know, and that's, there's a lot more to that question. Because if we say created, well, then that makes God the author of sin. And that's, again, that's, I'm, I'm just trying to demonstrate how really complicated this question gets. Uh, you know, um, you know, and how about these babies, you know, who, who uh, never repented, you know, it, why do we assume they don't repent? Okay. That is not a universal assumption. Never has been. Um, in fact, if we do believe that repentance is an act of faith and faith is a gift from God, then we have to be careful because um, then if it becomes a matter of our comprehension, you know, of, in other words, well, according to the Bible, what level of comprehension does one have to possess to be saved? You know, and I, I don't know what's going on in the mind of an infant and I, or of someone who is mentally incapable of certain understandings, I'd be careful that I don't become some sort of weird Gnostic making salvation based on secret knowledge and secret understanding, because that would be heresy. Um, and that, that would be bad. And, and we, t we tend to go that way. Okay. And I get it. I do too. I don't, I don't think it's, that unique, um, it's a very easy temptation. Um, so I'd be careful when we, we try to take on the responsibility of salvation in any sense, because then we really can make God very unjust. I think uh, one of you guys also mentioned the age of accountability. So I think with, as you're talking, as I'm hearing you talk about um, not making assumptions about infants not being able to repent, then how do you also balance that with a thought that there is an age of accountability 
So then what's the I've never seen this age of accountability in the Bible. I I just heard one of I don't remember which one said it, but I heard one of you guys say it. So then just like process through those two different thoughts because I I know that I have heard both of those thoughts as well. So yeah, I've heard it too, and I've just never seen it. Um, uh, yeah, I've just never seen it. Um, Yeah, that was me. (laughs) No, and I I think it was. I don't. I think it was important you mention it because it is. It's a concept that's out there, but it's it developed much later. That that was more of a medieval idea. Um, Not necessarily a bad idea, just not one. Not necessarily even unbiblical, but not not something we can find directly from the scriptures. Yeah, I think think the way it's. Okay. I think the way I would defend it is um, it, regarding the infant situation would be to say uh, there are different views on this, of course, within Christendom. I, 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 took, I hold the view that, uh, uh, by the way, I hold the view uh, humbly <laughs> uh, that God does save all infants uh, because they're not capable of believing. Um, so I would say, now, where would I look? To scripture for something like that, I'd say, well, I think David's son, David's baby was saved. Um, now, I know there's different arguments about that, but 2 Samuel 12 is where you find that uh, David is uh, praying for his son to be saved and uh, the baby dies. And so David dusts mm-hmm. himself off and gets on with things. And they say, you know, why are you okay now? You were a wreck just, you know, a little bit ago. And he says, well, um, can I bring him back? No, I'll go to him. He won't return to me. So if you understand that to mean uh, that David plans on being in heaven one day, the implication is he's going to see his child there. Um, the age of accountability itself, I think you find that idea in places like Deuteronomy 139, where it talks about uh, before uh, the little ones are able to know good from bad, uh, then they will enter the land and possess it. Or in uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 7.15, where it it talks about the child before he knows enough to uh, reject right uh, or reject wrong and choose the right. Um, So I do, I personally think you do see the age of accountability in there. You do see uh, scripture talk about a a point at which children can't make the decision uh, for right or wrong. And I don't think God's going to hold them accountable if they die and can't make that choice. Um, I even think you see adults that are judged based on the light that's given to them um, in scripture. Uh, You know, uh, Jesus said, uh, if you're blind, you wouldn't be guilty, but uh, you say you see, so your sin remains that kind of idea. I think you see other passages along that line. Um, So I think that there can be an argument made uh, that uh, God is going to save um, those children based on uh, and, and, and others will say, uh, you throw in there, he'll know whether they would receive the gospel had they lived to hear it, you know, and uh, God knows all things and knows whether we're going to accept him or reject him before any of us are even born. So uh, he can make that decision. So uh, that's the view I, I have. See, I would almost go, I, I tend to believe that infants will be saved as well, but more because I think they, there is some semblance they can believe. I mean, what did Jesus say? Let the little children come to me, such as the kingdom of God. Uh, we're, to, we're to believe like little children. So there's, I mean, it's not a direct thing, 
Um, what about like babies in the womb? What about like fetuses and stuff? I mean, I would that, I, I would even take it to them and say, I would, safe, well, I, I would just go back to, you know, uh, John the Baptist in the womb. He seemed to have some sort of knowledge and he was just, a, he was, he was, he was like to be the Elijah. And what do we know about Elijah from James? Just a guy. Um, you know, uh, there was nothing inherent about any of these people that, you know, inherent. I mean, they were, they were anointed, but inherently they needed the blood of Christ. There was nothing, there was no righteousness in them, um, any more or less than the rest of us, um, I mean, and I, I, I actually had a paper once from a student who defended the idea of infant damnation, and it was convincing. He didn't believe it himself, but I was impressed that he would, he would do that, and he did a good job. Um, but, you know, I, I run right to this. Here, here's my get out of all kinds of hard, hard, uh, hard issues uh, verse, Genesis 18.25, mm-hmm. uh, you know. This is a great get out of everything. Card. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? This is where Abram's interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and he basically calls on the, um, the nature of God, you know, in his, in his place of, of judge and you know, creator, I think. Um, you know, if you're righteous, will you not do what is right? So will anybody who be condemned who ought not be condemned? No. Absolutely 100% no. And is that enough? I, I, I think we have to get to a place where, where we say, you know, I have to trust that God is good and, 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 and live into that at some point because I'm not going to get it all. So. Yeah, I... I Okay. That's good. Oh, sorry, Will. I was just going to say, uh, Genesis 18.25, I agree with you 100%. It's a great verse. And, um, and, and I agree that uh, at some point, we, uh, I think we could, it's okay to say, uh, God, I leave this in your hands. I trust that you're going to be just. One of the things I like to do when these kinds of questions come up, because a lot of times I think they're, they're attempts to, to try to weasel out, for people to try to weasel out of buying into our, our faith, um, I like to remind people that um, you know I'm perfectly comfortable trusting God with the person in the indigenous tribe or with the infant. Uh, I know God's going to do the right thing. I know he loves them and he wants them to be saved more than I do. So uh, if there's a way for him to be saved, he'll save them. But what I want to remind you, my friend, who I'm talking to, is you've heard the gospel. One of the things I know about the Bible is it's going to hold you accountable. If you've heard that the, the, the scriptures, you've heard the gospel. You're going to be held accountable for that. And so what are you going to do with the revelation you've received? Don't let people get out of it without uh, reminding them they got to deal with it if you've given it to them. Um, and people choose hell. That's the other thing. I, I, I mean, yeah. that's the sad testimony of Scripture. But if you look at what Jesus said when he goes to Jerusalem, he says, you weren't willing. You know, uh, I wanted to gather you together, but you weren't willing. So. 
I think people who go to hell are choosing it. And and so I, I do like what C.S. Lewis said, you know, there's only two kinds of people in the end. There's people who say to God, uh, thy will be done. And there's people that God says to them, thy will be done. You don't want it my way, have it your way. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, I agree. Well, I, I cut you off. Sorry. No, that's all right. No, I, I agree with Bob and Eddie what you were saying. I mean, I read a quote the other day, which kind of piggybacks on some of this and just gives you something to think about. Um, because I think a lot of times, you know, we'll, we'll see this question, you know, hear this question, and it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't even evangelize because, you know, the far off tribes and the baby. Uh, but it says here, um, if we assume that those who never hear the gospel are granted mercy from God, we lose our motivation for evangelism. We also run into a terrible problem. If people who never hear the gospel are automatically saved, then it's logical to make sure that no one ever hears the gospel because then that there will be a chance that they will reject it and be condemned. And so again, getting back to, okay, well, we are t called to go and make disciples into all nations. We're called, you know, commanded as believers. Um, but then like what Bob and Andy said, it's like, you know, God's going to give those different revelations to different people um, in different ways and, and, you know, to the babies as well. Um, but we're responsible to do our part uh, wherever God is calling us to go and, and to not uh, negate that just because, you know, someone far off in some land may never hear. Um, and so we, we definitely need to continue doing what God's calling us to do. So. Yeah, you don't want to reject, you don't want to reject your uh, life preserver just because, uh, some people might not get one, right? If you're on a boat and it goes down and there's a bunch of people drowning and at the last second when you're about to drown, you're throwing a life preserver. Are you going to say, nah, I'm not going to grab that because there are other people who may not get it. Mm -hmm. Or are you going to grab onto that sucker and share it with as many people as you can? Right. I'd, I'd recommend the latter. And, you know, keep in mind too, that Revelation 5 talks about the fact that there are going to be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation uh, in heaven. So God's going to get them if <laughs> they're willing he's going to get them yeah. uh, so, every every knee will bow some... every tongue will confess so uh andy was you know quoting that that thy will be done stuff that was from my favorite book the great divorce by c.s lewis mm -hmm. and if you ever want to see how how we go about rejecting god's grace and the the warped logic of it you can't do much better than that um because I, I, I do truly believe we do not want God. I think that's what scripture says, um, that we want, we, we want our way. Um, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek, seek God. And if that's the case, then it's hardly unjust to say God, if, if God doesn't say, says, okay, <laughs> you know, uh, if we want God to respect our autonomy, there you go. That's that's him respecting your autonomy, is your, your condemnation, you know, and and you're becoming all all about yourself, uh, complete self absorption, um, uh, hell basically. So anyway, go read Great Divorce. Yeah, and then um, getting again, it's hard. It's weird. Yeah, yeah. But, I want to follow up um, with. A, a common wrestling that I've heard from other devoted Christians, I, I think especially when they hit the college age and they really start to 
like like really get through all of the aspects of learning about the father's character and really thinking about condemnation and that kind of stuff and the call to go and okay now we're talking about billions of people's eternities on the line um i think a common wrestling that comes up you mentioned a verse in second timothy um about the lord not wanting anyone to perish i think the common progression for a lot of people who wrestle with that especially young people is that okay we're talking about an all-powerful God, right? And if he is saying that he wants none to perish, um, and I this also can get a little bit into the camp of free will versus uh, the sovereignty of God. Um, how, do you, how do you grapple with the character of God, the goodness of God, if he's a God who is all-powerful and says that he desires for everyone to be saved but then, and, and he's the one that we also believe by the Holy Spirit initiates salvation in the life of a believer. What then do we do when he does not initiate salvation in the lives of those who are being condemned and sent to hell? Where do we wrestle with the character of his goodness in that? Because I know that that's, that's something that I've spent time wrestling with myself. So, um, and I also just encourage you guys like to bring this into bring this into a very college level haven't spent time in a theology course loving you super well kind of conversation um because i think that can be a Mm -hmm. lot easier and a lot more receptive for college students um especially who would be would be the type to kind of be asking these questions they're just like, ah, stuffy theology words. I don't know what that means. And I'm going to have to spend five years learning just your vocabulary kind of stuff. So try to help me understand what we do with the character of God within condemnation. I think our answers may differ a little bit, uh, depending. I Maybe I'm wrong on that. Uh, but I suspect they will. But that's fine, because I think they're all within Christendom. So my answer would be that uh, I do think that uh, apart from uh, God drawing us to himself, we are in trouble. We will reject him, that our natural inclination is to reject God. And I think that God has to draw us to himself. Now, I also would hold, though, that we can freely choose him, uh, that he can woo us to himself, but he doesn't force us to himself. He doesn't give us the faith, as it were. Now, some Christians will disagree with that, but I don't think he gives us the faith to do it. I think we freely choose him. So that's how I see the uh, the harmony there. I do think God wants us all to be saved, uh, and I do think that he's willing to woo us and to draw us to himself, but uh, I also think that um, some of us are willing to receive it, and some of us are going to reject him. And he's not going to force us into heaven. There's no shotgun weddings in heaven. Uh, and so if, if we're not willing, uh, then he will respect our decision. So that's a, a rough overview of, does that at least make sense? Whether you agree or disagree, does, yeah. does what I'm saying make sense, basically? Yeah. yeah. Um, to make things messier, 
<laughs> um, because I also enjoy doing that because I, I just think when you really get into any Christian, like genuinely considering these things, you bring them all up. You have to bring up all of scripture. Um, and so just because I am of the camp that I don't think scripture contradicts itself. So then how does all of this fit together? Then you look back to the Exodus and we see evidence that God, God is able to harden hearts. Um, we see this a couple of times in the old Testament. So then what do we do with the idea that God is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart and casting, casting now judgment on all of Egypt, murdering all of their sons, other, their firstborn sons, that kind of stuff. And, and the idea that, okay, then what would it look like for God to also be hardening the hearts um, of anyone who would be hearing the gospel and now not receiving it because God is actively hardening their heart. Now, how is God good? And my answer to that would be that we also see Pharaoh freely rejecting God. Uh, so I don't think that God is hardening the heart um, apart from our free will choice. So I think you can have free will and God's sovereignty uh, as well, because I think God's sovereignty is in accordance with man's free will. So I think you can have both. Pharaoh does freely reject and God hardens his heart. Okay. Well, and, and like that's you my said, view, but yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's like, like you said earlier, Andy, it's like, is it thy will or thy will? And, and you see all throughout scripture where people will reject God, you know, such as Pharaoh and say, like, okay, I'm going to give you over. I'm going to allow this to happen uh, in your life. Um, you know, and, and I, I'm sure it grieves the Lord uh, when that happens. Cause it's like, you know, his character is that he wants everybody to be saved, but yet he's not going to, like Andy said, he's not going to force himself on anybody. Um, you, know, you know, I think I think of, you know, Jesus on the cross, his arms are wide open. You know, he's not forcing himself on anyone, um, but yet he will give us over to the, to the desires of our heart. If, if we're going to be that, um, you know, sinful and callous and all of that, I think there's a point where he's going to be like, you know what? Okay. I, I've done what I can do. I, you know, hope this works out for you. Um, and and that, that's a hard pill to swallow. And, and, you know, I think there's also too a balance of, um, you know, you think of, um, oh gosh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, it's God's sovereignty, but it, it is also our free will. It's kind of a both and situation. And sometimes that that's kind of a paradox to try and figure out. Um, but there again, it's like, okay, you know, just, Let's trust the Lord, obviously, at the end, at the end of the day, that, you know, he's going to do what he's going to do in ways that we can't even fully understand this side of heaven. Yeah. Um, so. I think you have to, you have to just sometimes go to that because uh, I, I never see it, you know, you talking about God not forcing himself on anybody. I look at scripture and that's all I see because I don't think we respond otherwise. I, I mean, Saul was, you know, Paul was forced upon. Paul was going to kill Christians. And then he's struck down. I mean, that's, he wasn't asked. True. John the Baptist in the womb was not asked. Um, uh, Moses was not asked. Um, it was... There is a there is a sense of drawing, yes, but 
I, I think we we are so hardened that we 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 will reject him. We have rejected him. We will we will give him the finger every time, even still. Um, and he has every right to honor that. And it, our, if he honors our free will, then you're condemned. And I don't think there's any any way out of that. Um, I mean. Even if God is looking ahead to see who accepts him and who rejects him, you know what? He still creates those that come around and rejecting him. He's still and sovereign. He still makes the choice to, to create those that will be condemned. There's nothing easy about this, and there's no way we can deal with this in the time. <laughs> that we have here. So um, let's I'm get into the Greek, Bob. Oh, the Greek, yeah. I mean, the Greek will just make it so much easier. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, I will be honest. These, these are not easy, and they're. I am almost. I almost bristle against the attempts to get God off the hook. I would rather him, I'd rather not understand and know that the judge of the whole earth will do what is right, whether I get it or not. Because I don't understand much of anything. One thing studying five years of theology and all the terms teaches you is you don't know a whole heck of a lot. I knew a whole lot more in my sophomore year than I did when I graduated. <laughs> <laughs> from seminary. I was much better theologian then. I was much, I knew much more. Um, but I do know God is good. And um, you have to, the only way to do this is to dive in and expect to lose a few nights of sleep. Um, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and make it easy on you because I don't think, I don't think it can be. Um, I'm not saying anyone's trying to do that. I'm just saying, uh, I don't think it can be done. <laughs> well, it, is, it is good. To, you know, you raise a good point, Bob. It is good to wrestle with these things, right? I mean, we see, uh, we see uh, uh, characters in scripture wrestle with God on issues all the time. Jacob and, and, uh, and some, the psalmists and things are wrestling with ideas and trying to work them out. And this is one of those, I think that it's worth doing. And hopefully we've given you a couple angles uh, to consider. Uh, as you wrestle through it, and um, I, I do think. Go so, ahead. so the arch enemy of of you know John Calvin, everybody uh, loves to hit on John Calvin. Uh, he said these are hard things and not to be trifled with. Um, this is stuff to be done with a lot of prayer and a lot of trembling. Um, don't discuss these things glibly um, because unless you, because without the proper care and sensitivity you can do a lot of damage. I know I've done it um, in the past. We have done it here, um, but you asked. Um, <laughs> So all that to say is it's, it's going to be hard work to, if you're going to take it seriously. And I encourage you to do that. Don't do it alone. I think we're actually going to get to this question here in a bit, but 
um, about theology, but you know, don't do it alone. Take your time and just believe. You don't understand how he works, understand who he is. Just real quick too, keep in mind that uh, the truth of Christianity is not hinging on some of these difficult questions that we're wrestling with. There are different views within Christianity on these things. It is worth wrestling with. You should do it. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, as an agnostic student that we're working with right now said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then all my theological questions and questions about the Bible can just take a back seat because if he rose from the dead. Christianity is true and I should believe it. And there's really good evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. So uh, keep that in mind just to, I hope that gives you some reassurance as you're working through some of these tough questions that um, we've got a really strong foundation from which Christianity comes and, and, and we can rest on as, uh, as we trust God to work through these answers. Look at the kindness and generosity of who God is and look at these questions in light of that. Um, rather than the, rather so much in the light of a, you know, God of the philosophers, you know, that we've, we've categorized, you know, rather than the God of scripture. Because um, the God of scripture is, you know, I don't know how it all works. Um, but he's good and he's compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. If that's true, to get the rest, you know, we got to sort out the rest. There's no paper. What's that? I was say there's no paper test at the pearly gates. There's no, not, no, it's hard to talk about this without it sounding like a cop out. Um, just know that there are a lot of people who have not copped out on this question and have dived deep. Um, and it's hard. And, uh, yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate you guys uh, following up on all of those many questions. Um, I think we're going to keep moving on and Ben's got our fourth question. Yep. So this one is a, a bit more uh, practical than the former. Uh, so is it wrong for a Christian to date or marry, well, date and then marry um, a non-Christian? And then there'll be a follow-up like, what about the Protestant and Catholic divide. So Christian and non-Christian, Christian and Catholic, or uh, sorry, Protestant slash uh, non-denominational and Catholic, uh, where where are those divisions supposed to lie? Or are there supposed to be any? I'll start. Um, a couple of questions to think about. Um, first of all, what is the purpose and end game of dating? Um, ultimately, it's marriage. And then you kind of look into the second question is, okay, what is God's design for marriage? And so you think about, you know, man and wife for life, you know, honoring God and, and his design, you know, one is procreation and all that. Um, and I look at second Corinthians 614, where it talks about, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers uh, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. And um, I automatically think about, um, the thought of oil mixing oil and water okay you can you can have a cup and and put oil and water in there the only trouble is and, and you know people in science will know this too the 
uh, oil particles will automatically attract other oil particles and the water particles will separate to be with the other water particles. And so there's a separation there, even though they're in the same place, there's a separation um, of those elements. Um, and so they'll never really fully be able to exist together uh, in, in that kind of way. Um, and then you know, the whole yoke thing, um, a yoke, it, it's kind of a, it's, it's a device, you know, for joining together like draft animals. And so you've seen the pictures of like the cattle with the, with the, the wooden bar over them because it's, it's, they're used oxen. Um, it's a, it's a cross piece with the bow, sh you know, two bow shaped pieces. And so it, it's, they're fastened together for a purpose. And so you just think about if, if one oxen is really strong and, and, and the other is kind of weak, there's going to be an imbalance there. And so there's going to be kind of a battle of them working against each other. And so they're going against the purpose for that which they should be going together. And so, um, you know, I think of a being an unbalanced um, and, you know, just being always having that struggle. And so we just get back to, okay, what is God's purpose? And so, and this goes into, you know, believing, unbelieving, um, Catholic, Protestant, um, at the end of the day, why would you date someone who has a different belief? If your belief in the Lord is like your biggest thing that you want to share with that person, um, why would you have somebody else that's contrary to that? And, you know, you just kind of see the fact that you are going to continue, you know, have those butting of heads and that separation too. So anyway. First Corinthians seven thirty nine, Paul deals with this, I think, because he's asked about widows. Um, do do widows get around too, so to speak? Uh, and Paul's response is, uh, sure, if they want to, but only in the Lord uh, is is his tag there at the end. So that to me gives a pretty good principle of, of what Paul's driving at there. And I, I think it it uh, it is for the reasons Will's talking about. Um, I think of the triangle analogy. That's the one I like when we talk about marriage, where God's at the top, a husband is at one side at the bottom, and a wife's at the other side. Now, how are the husband and wife going to get closer to each other in their marriage? Well, they can try to go along the bottom, but that's doing it um, in worldliness. That's doing it on your own, and we know where that leads, right, eventually. Uh, or they can try drawing closer to God, and as the husband and wife draw closer to God, they're naturally going to draw closer to each other as well so if you've got that foundation for a marriage i think it's very very powerful um, help so it's one of those uh, yeah it, it it's kind of a, a question that is itself kind of a pastoral diagnostic you know if if you're asking that question there's probably some stuff we need to deal with you know why are we asking that question it's kind of like the old question you know, how, you know, you know, how, how, how close can I get to the line? You know, you know, sexually speaking, it's like, well, it's best to not get anywhere near it, you know, <laughs> um, but uh, so, you know, if, if that question's being asked, it probably means it's like, well, why are you asking now? What's, what's behind that? To the question itself, is it wrong for a, a Christian to date or marry a non-Christian? Um, I'm always really nervous about words like wrong because um, I think that first Corinthian actually was very helpful for me, you know, what you said about only in the Lord, because when I look at the whole uh, unequally yoked, I think applies to marriage, but that's not its primary 
um, context. Um, so, you know, I, I tend to go with the questions of wisdom. You know, is it, am I going to come out and say it's a sin to date or marry a non-Christian? All other things being equal, I don't think I can with biblical authority, at least strongly. Do I think it's a good idea? No. <laughs> I think it's a really, really unwise thing to do. I don't know if that makes it a sin. I don't know if it's something you would get kicked out of a church for or get church discipline. It, it may be a, to me, it's a symptom of some, maybe some deeper rebellion, um, you know, some, some heart issues that issues of discipleship or areas where, you know, maybe you just need to be taught a few things. You know, a lot of times people don't need to be um, disciplined so much as taught, you know, and um, so it could be just that sort of thing. Um, you know, so it's, yeah, generally I think it's a bad, bad idea. Uh, <laughs> Um, but in an absolute sense, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't feel comfortable saying that. I would just advise against it. Hopefully there's a Christian community that can give, that can advise that, provide direction, that there is um, pastors and elders that presumably you've submitted to to some degree. You know, it's like, you know, if they say, I don't think it's a good idea and I'm not going to perform in marriage, <laughs> you know, um, and again, kind of to the next question, hope you know, or to the whole, you know, Protestants refusing, pastors refusing, or whatever. Hopefully, that is a question that's been answered ahead of time, and you're not it's not making it up on the fly. Um, you know, and that you have a body of elders or deacons or somebody uh, speaking into that, and it's not just haphazard, because that's a bigger problem, <laughs> in my view. That's a great point. Uh, you know, if, if you are serious about possibly getting married, I highly recommend you do premarital counseling and serious premarital counseling. Take it seriously, not one time visiting a pastor, having a quick you know, 30 minute chat, but do some serious premarital counseling where you're talking about what your expectations are in a marriage, what you believe, uh, you really uh, drill down on that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with the whole Protestant and Catholic thing, uh, I think you have to ask what the person actually believes. I, I, I know some Catholics who believe in uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, even though that's not the official Catholic, Catholic mm -hmm. doctrine. Um, so I think you have to ask, going, going back to kind of that wisdom thing, you got to ask what they believe. But you also have to ask, you know, how are we going to handle this going forward? How are we going to raise children if we have children? Uh, what what church are we going to attend, and, and what doctrine are we really going to hold to? So you have to have some yes, you have to ask pretty big questions uh, and ask them sooner rather than later. And you're you're going to find some great marriages that are spiritually mixed, and and you're going to find some Christian marriages that are a wreck. Um, and uh, so, you know, yeah, I, I, it seems to me that having that community speaking into it and submitting, or at least in the sense that, you know what, I'm not going to move on this alone. 
if we're doing these things alone all the time. That's, that's not how the body of Christ works. So if you have to get, go outside the body of Christ to marry somebody or outside of your body of Christ, um, that, that could be a pro, I mean, there could be issues there, you know. Oh, there could be issues in the relationship. Could be getting back to the whole church thing, you know. Could be issues in the church, you know, or the leadership being either too authoritarian or too, or not, <laughs> or too wishy-washy. You know, it gets really complicated really fast. So, so that's all we're going to do here is probably just muddle the waters for for you. So, there's my. Do you have any controversial questions at all that you want to? Yeah throw at us before the yeah. night's over or <laughs> sure no, they're, they're really they're really good <laughs> um, got a controversial one real quick um chicken had lips could it whistle no you see this is kind of like the whole the whole you know who's a bachelor married to kind of question or you know, <laughs> yeah, the, the question is nonsense or, you know. I was definitely expecting the what came first chicken yeah, question because that's yeah. another controversial chicken question these days. Um, that's what I was prepared for. But so, yeah. I, I'd say it has to be the egg because there were, you know, chickens aren't the only thing that lay eggs. There's a yolk in here somewhere. We've we always unequally dealt with that. Okay, guys. All right. All right. All right. Settle down. Would um, somebody take control. Somebody, somebody get us under submission. Yeah, we are going to move on to our last question. Um, we're going to skip through question five and then get to the sixth one just for sake of time. Um, but in a very practical sense, and I was actually reading through uh, – both of Paul's letters to Timothy in like the last two days. And there's just a lot, there's a lot of warning about false teachers. Um, and so if, I think this is super common for college students where they, you know, they move out of mom and dad's house and then they have to figure out what is theirs and what's their parents as far as their faith is concerned. Um, and then when they realize that they might not be left with a whole lot of faith on their own, they work towards kind of building that up and strengthening that and really taking, taking stock um, and wanting to grow. But also in the age of the internet, where you can get on the internet and you can find someone probably labeled as Christian who will say just about anything, um, what are good guards to put up? against false teachers and how do we process through that and how do we grow in discernment so what does it look like to kind of build up your theological base what are practical ways to do that and then how do you guard against false teachers well first you join russia christie and we'll show you how no i think there's a, a few things that just general principles. I mean, there's, there's tons of stuff. I could talk about this for days because it's my job to talk about these things. Um, but, you know, we do it in community. I think that's, that's again, I mentioned that a few times, but you want other people in the room with you at some point who are wrestling with that. 
And you also want people in history. You want a community of the saints. You want to know what other people have thought. Um, you know, last year, 10 years ago, a thousand years ago, you know, and what has been, what has been consistent and what's kind of been fly by night. Um, you know, you want to read different books. Uh, you want it under guidance. Hopefully you have somebody who's a little bit further ahead of you, giving you some accountability and, and balance. One of the dangers I've seen with people who do it on their own is they get, they get their hobby horse and it's usually something more interesting, more exciting and weird than the stuff that, you know, the stuff we spent five years, you know, doing, you know, uh, and you can get really unbalanced, you know, you can be all about the rapture or you can be all about creation days and you couldn't explain the, the atonement to save your life, you know, and I, that's common. Um, and a lot of humility. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. It's like, always get back to the Bible. It's like, it's, a, it's great to have outside sources, but it's like, okay, are they affirming what's in the Bible? That, that's a key thing. Or are they taking it away? So that could be a red flag there. Um, just in the interest of time, I want to read something real quick. Um, there was something in the ESV study Bible that I thought was really helpful. It was talking about the theological process. And I'm just going to give a quick flyover, but it's something to think about as I mean, for all of us, as we're studying scripture, as we're reading passages, um, the first they talk about is exegesis, the process of seeking to determine the correct meaning out of a particular passage of scripture. Uh, then you have biblical theology, the study of scriptural revelation based on the historical framework presented in the Bible. Then there's systematic theology, the study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about a given topic? Um, historical theology, the study of how believers in different eras of history of the church have understood various theological topics. Um, philosophical theology, the study of theological topics primarily through the uses of tools and methods of philosophical reasoning and information gained from nature and reason, like general revelation, um, apart from the Bible. Um, practical theology, the study of how to best um, apply theological truths to the life and in the church and the world, um, including preaching, Christian education, counseling, evangelism, missions, church administration, worship, etc. And then our favorite one, apologetics, the study of theology for the purpose of defending Christian teaching against criticism and distortion, giving evidence for credibility. So a bunch of different things there to you know, employ as you're reading scripture, as you're delving into different topics, um, because you know, context is everything too. Um, you know, is, you know, this passage, you know, just for that time period, for that era, or, you know, should I be stoning, stoning people today? Or is that, you know, or there's metaphor, is there, you know, you know, all sorts of different uh, genres of the text and, and the narrative and all of that. So a lot of different things to think about as you're trying to build into that theology. And you're never reading, you're never reading the Bible for yourself. Um, you're, you're always reading it through a framework. Some of, them, some of it you're aware of, some of it you're not. Mm -hmm. Most of it you're not. Yeah. Um, so don't avoid that. Just embrace that and realize that's the truth. Mm -hmm. It's not bad. It's just 
if you think you're reading it without any other other influence, just the Bible, then you're deceiving yourself. Mm-hmm. And, well, okay. And uh, so, uh, you know, recognize the fact that we are in the middle of this 2,000 plus year Bible study. You know, it's been going on across oceans and decades and centuries, cultures. Um, And like in any Bible study, some people are going to say stupid things (laughs) and other people are going to say profound things and every manner of mixture of that. And sometimes the smart people say some stupid things and stupid people be saying smart things and godly people be saying wicked things. Um, So, you know, listen to that because you may as well. (laughs) Uh, You're you're, you're stuck with it. And there's a lot of grand wisdom out there. Mm -hmm. You know, we ain't that bright. The whole point of theology, it's two words, theos and logos. So it's God and his word. It's an effort to know and love God and his word and his truth. And so as long as you're chasing after those two things, that's a primary um, pinpoint, you know, to, to say, okay, I'm in the right direction. Um, I have a couple books. Oh, sorry. Oh. oh, I was just going to add real quick. My dad once taught me, uh, if you read 15 minutes a day on a given subject, uh, eventually, you're going to be an expert. Uh, so just be in the scripture daily. Um, you don't have to spend hours and hours a day, but just read 15 minutes a day or whatever it is. Uh, I definitely agree with no history. Know what what brilliant thinkers and throughout thousands of years of church history have said about the subjects. The only other thing I would add is uh, study philosophy. <laughs> Become a good critical thinker, in other words. Uh, because that teaches you how to ask the right kinds of questions, mm-hmm. how to examine critically, how to systematize things and make sense of uh, different parts of scripture. Uh, Aquinas said philosophy is the handmaiden of theology. I think that's true. You're really not doing theology without philosophy. You're really not just interpreting the Bible on its own. We're always using some kind of philosophy. So make a good philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to recommend two books that and I have to recommend a few more, but the, if, I, if I were to say there's one or two books that you would that do the best jobs of giving, broadly speaking, a, a theological framework that doesn't, that doesn't lean too far one way or the other as far as traditions are concerned, but will challenge you. Um, it would be so be very, you know, be real simple. Know what you believe by Paul Little, but by InterVarsity Press. Um, it's not terribly big. It kind of gives a very basic overview of systematic theology, which is usually when we're talking about theology, we're talking about it's called systematic theology, which is sort of the the um, synthesis of a bunch of, of these other aspects of it. Um, Another one, if you want to take it a bit more seriously and go a little bit deeper, go a little bit broader, um, I've, I've seen nothing that even comes close to being as good as uh, Christian Theology and Introduction by Alistair McGrath. Um, it's, inc- it's, it's big, 
but it's incredibly readable. It does a really good job of, of covering not just the systematic theology, but also an overview of the history of the church, you know, how it was thought of in the early church and the, the medieval, the Reformation, kind of the, the basic overview. Uh, and then it talks about called theological methodology. You know, what are the things that are influencing the way we think, you know, and why? You know, we say, oh, we're led by the Bible. Oh, are we being led by the spirit of the Bible? Or is it the church? Or, you know, what, what's guiding our thinking and how? And, you know, so I, I think he does a better job than, I mean, I've had this book for like 25, 30 years, and it's still the best one. I mean, it's they're new and new, new versions of it, but I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's interesting because he's an Oxford guy. He's one of the bigger names in evangelical theology. His PhD is in microbiology. He's also probably one of the biggest experts on C.S. Lewis. On, on, on. Just, and you can read him. He's readable, very readable. So, Alistair McGrath. Or Paul Little. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that pretty well uh, wraps up our evening. So thank you guys so much for everything that you, uh, every word of wisdom that you were able to pass along to us. Um, really appreciate both times that you guys have been here. Um, we're always happy to have some inter-community uh, events such as these across IEPUI. It lets us know we're not alone. Um, so yeah, I'll go ahead and uh, I'm sorry. I said thank you. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, Appreciate yes. it. Yes. So I'll uh, go ahead and pray us out and then we'll, we'll be good to go. So God, I thank you so much for this time that we've had. Um, I thank you that we've been able to look at so many different topics. And although we didn't go as deeply as we could have in any of them, really, um, thank you so much for uh, the the depth that we were able to be taken to with these three incredibly wise men. Um, so, uh, yeah, I pray for, pray for health and safety as we move on throughout our week and as we move out of the semester. Continue to pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for having us. Let's do it again. Thanks very much guys. Thank you guys. All right. Take care. Thank you guys.